Weir's World, the All Ears podcast, in association with Hoppy's Dry Suit Services, keeping you dry in the wet stuff. For more information, search Hoppy's Dry Suit Services on Facebook. Welcome to Weir's World, the All Ears podcast, which will take you on a roller coaster journey around the world. Follow me from Beijing to New York City and back as I share my tales to tell, encompassing the 10 years of Gliadric and the Kabbalistic Cavalry, as well as touring with some well known faces. From celebrity stories to travel nightmares, We'll be reminiscing on the ridiculousness of it all, with special guests jumping in along the way. All Ears is your new favourite weekly podcast. How oh, is it now? Oh, is it? Is it? Is it though? Is it I? Is it? Is it? No, what's that Kevin Bridges thing? Did you I? Did you I? <laughs> Did you I? Evening. Hello. Hello, hello. What are you saying, sir? Absolutely nothing new. Oh, not too much. What's new? What's new? What's happening? Uh, what's new? Busy week. Busy week. Gigs everywhere, up and down the country, which is good. Um, what else has happened? We've got less than 10 episodes to go, by the way. I'll throw that in. Oh, I mean, we've not actually told the listeners that we're only going to a year. So you've just given the game away. Have we not? I thought we've said a year on this. Oh, we've we've, we've not actually told the, the, the dear listeners that this is only going for 52 episodes. So you just let the cat out the bag. Uh, I'll edit this bit out. Probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> Although, it's worth noting that while you're giving the game away and somewhat, um, we are working on other plans and, and ways that we can continue Weir's World um, in a different format, if you will, um, going forth. That is a very polite way of... Polite? I'm not sure if that's the right word. It's a very good way of saying it. Pol- would you, pol- political. Would you, ever, would you ever question my... Politics, my turn of phrase. Like I'm always, uh, always manual. I'd never question your politics. I'd question some of your decisions. That's for sure. Uh, any in particular? Well, wait. I've got a list here somewhere. Let me, let me find it. <laughs> you know, let's talk. Right, while we're on the subject of decision making, right? Mm. Um, I don't know if you've seen my Instagram poll that's running this evening, right? But for the last, I don't know. I would say year of my life, right? Mm-hmm. Um. My friends have slagged me for my love of eating mushrooms as a snack. Raw mushrooms as a snack, right? Now, unfortunately, the poll on Instagram is not going my way at present, right? Uh, uh-huh. we, are, we are getting humped a little bit here. Um, but for those listening who can't see the Instagram poll at this point, the question is regarding whether raw mushrooms are an acceptable snack or not. And yeah. you've got the choice of lovely scran or yeah. lunatic behaviour. Ali, how do you vote in the in that poll? Well, I've literally just picked up my phone to vote on this poll because I hadn't actually seen it. Um, lovely scran or lunatic behaviour. Do you know what? I'm going to go for lunatic behaviour. Oh, now, now I'm questioning your decision, though. Let's. Well, as it stands, it's currently 73% to lunatic behaviour. I know. However, and possibly the worst segue that we have had in 43 <laughs> episodes of this podcast, you know what's coming next, yep. in 43 episodes of this podcast, what I'm curious to know is what does Robert Robertson of Tidelines have to say about the great mushroom debate? And that's what we're going to find out this evening as we welcome on Robert from Tidelines. You were right, that was dreadful. Robert, how are you doing, mate? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, we're, we're doing fine, man. We're doing fine. Where, where are you coming from this evening? Where are you? Uh, Partick in, in sunny Glasgow at the moment. 
how, how exotic, eh? I mean, it's not very often you get to say sunny Glasgow, is it? No, no, that's true, but we make the most of it. Taps, taps half weather, as we say here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, tell us about, obviously, the, the, the last year and a half for that, right? It's been obviously really difficult for, for everyone in lots of different ways. But how, how has the pandemic been for you in general? <laughs> yes, it's funny. You never want to go on about how terrible it's been because you realise that, you know, everybody's got their, their stories about how awful it's been. Some, you know, some to a much greater degree than others. Um, for us, to be honest, it's, it's been fine. But the fact that uh, we've not done a... Well, actually, we recently did our first live gig in um, in over a year and a half. It's just, I mean, I, I still, I just can't get my head around it that that's actually happened. It's totally mad. Um, we were also slightly unfortunate uh, as far as bands go in that we were releasing an album right as it, as it started. Um, and of course, the traditional route of touring and, uh, and, and getting that album out to people is obviously playing it live. We had a big UK tour lined up to support the album campaign with a, a kind of Nordic Scandinavian tour to again support the album all, all based around the material on the album and uh, so they've not been cancelled but they've been postponed about four times and they're yeah. still they're all in the, the, the calendar now but of course it's it's a year and a half ago that we released the album so it's yeah I mean well, I'm not complaining uh, it could be a lot worse but um, but yeah it's hardly been ideal <laughs> No that's for sure and during the pandemic, have you managed to, like, we've had a range of guests on, obviously, over the last period, right? And half of them are sort of saying, yeah, we've managed to stay really creative. We've done a lot of writing during the pandemic. It's been great. And not great. Great's not the right word. But, and, and the other half of them are saying, do you know, we've really struggled for inspiration and stuff during the pandemic because there's nothing going on and we write about the world, right? Yeah. What, where, where, what, what, what side of the coin would you say you're on in that sense? A bit of both, to be honest. Um when the pandemic started uh, and it was becoming clear that we were going into this lockdown and, you know, it was going to be longer than the three weeks that everyone was talking about. Yeah. Um, I was in this flat in Glasgow. Now, I live here by myself. It's a tenement flat. And I thought, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to see it out. Yeah. Um, as so many people have had to do, um, you know, by, by myself in a flat. I'm lucky enough that my mum and dad still live in the Highlands where I'm from, just outside Fort William. And so I isolated in here for two weeks to make sure I didn't have the, the virus. And I got in my car and I headed straight for Fort William. And I ended up spending three and a half months um, back home, which is something that when I left home when I was 17, I never, ever anticipated myself spending that amount of time back there, you know, living yeah. with my mum and dad. So, yeah, um, getting back to my mum and dad's um, was a godsend. Of course, that was when there was great weather. So being in the Highlands, you know, I was able, I was able to get out and about. So in some ways... The inspiration wasn't lost in that sense. I was like the world didn't stop for me. I was able to just spend a few months at home. Um, but that was, as I say, when we just launched a new album. So it wasn't like it was the time that I would be writing new material because we were already we already had a wealth of new material that nobody yeah. heard. And it was months after that that it really occurred to me: wait a minute, we might have launched this album, but by the time everyone hears us again, we're going to need new songs again. So it was it kind of yeah. took a while before I actually sat back down and thought, right, I need to get the guitar back out here and start start writing some stuff, even although I've never even gigged the last 12 songs that I wrote. So yeah, um, so yeah, as I say, kind of what you described there is right, but we were kind of half and half. Yeah, it's an interesting one in general, isn't it? Because 
when you look in the face of it at all these gigs and events that have been carried over and over, and obviously some of them will run this summer, but a whole bunch of them have carried their lineups over to 2022. You have to think that by the time 2023 comes along, it's going to be a nightmare pitching for festivals and all that sort of thing because all these bands who've been writing and trying to put stuff together, all touting for the same few slots at festivals, it's going to be it's going to be rough for a lot, of, especially grassroots acts. You know, this is it. I think it's um, different bands have been affected different ways, but I think that the, the guys I feel really sorry for are the ones maybe ten years younger than me in a sense that are just maybe not ten years, but a few years younger than me that are just coming up. And uh, and trying to get on the the bottom of the hill at all at all those festivals just to get a, a name for themselves. And to an extent, we're in that in, in that situation. Uh, perhaps not in Scotland, where we, we tend to to do reasonably good slots at festivals, but certainly in England, where for a number of summers now we've been aiming to just get on you know your bigger English festivals, getting on even if it's quite far down the the lineup, just so that we could start. Yeah. I mean, yeah, and uh, and for us, you're absolutely right. I'm 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 now worrying. Well, you know, if we're pitching for that in a few years' time, uh, or, or or not a few years' time next year, then uh, you know, so many so many so many lineups are carrying over. You're thinking, well, yeah. where's room for for new acts? And as I say, yeah. that's what I worry certainly in our own in, in Scotland. Um, you know, for your guys that are just maybe leaving school or leaving uni or whatever, and they're starting their bands and they're now going to go to festivals and send them a demo or whatever. I know when, you know, when are they going to get the, the space of the, on the lineups? But listen, all that will take care of itself, I'm, yeah, I'm 100%, sure. 100%. So, so let's, let's go right back to the start for you, right? So, so growing up, right, who were some of your sort of musical influences, inspirations, and what was it initially that, that got you into music? Very initially, uh, uh, well, actually, I mean, all through my childhood, really, coming from the Highlands, uh, traditional music was was a big part of, of, of my upbringing. I would, I would never, yeah. uh, I, I, and, and that remains today. And, and what Tidelines do, it's certainly a part of it. Um, it's not a, not a, not a, a, not the only part of it, but by any means, but but it's yeah. certainly always going to be there. Um, and when I was a wee kid, I mean, it was kind of folk, like Scottish folk acts, like like the Corries and things like that. You know, when I was a tiny wee boy, that I just. I just loved, I used to go about playing my mum's uh, kitchen ladle, <laughs> pretending, <laughs> pretending I was Ronnie Brown and Roy Williams and the Corries, you know, as a, as a wee talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, it's like everyone else, your parents and your musical influences coming from them. My dad has a, a great taste in music. Um, <laughs> is, that your way, is that your way of saying that he only listens to you? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if he's watching this, he'll have a smile because uh, I, I probably don't tell him that too much. But it's, I love the, the music that he lived, uh, listened to when I was growing up um, was obviously the Scottish stuff, but also uh, kind of like 60s American rock and roll slash folk, you know, bands like, I mean, bands like the Kingston Trio and, and, and things like that that were based on kind of vocal harmony and... and um, Kind of folk, sort of rock and roll, so like the, the, you know, the gap between you know your Bob Dylan's and your yep. and all, and uh, and I was really quite influenced by that as well. Although I didn't really recognise that until recently, when I was thinking back and I was thinking, why do I like the bands that I like today? And a lot of it's actually perhaps to do with that. Um, and then going back to the traditional thing, the Gaelic uh, scene was 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 a big part of that. Uh, being in mm -hmm. Fort William uh, as a wee kid, started performing and. 
uh, round about there, all the, the concerts at the Kayleys, there was a big Gaelic influence, a lot of great, great Gaelic singers um, coming from all around the west of the Highlands uh -huh. would, would perform. And, and so that was also a, a big influence. Um, I wasn't so much as I was growing up into anything that was particularly current at the time. I grew up through the 90s, I suppose, and didn't, didn't really, at that time, listen to much current 90s music. Um, you weren't into the whole Britpop thing then? No, no, Britpop. What age are you? Are you ages with us? Uh, I'm 27. Yeah, right, we're 28, so yeah, we're, we're from the same ah, you know, I. Brit, Britpop kind of passed me by, it has to say, as I, I, was, I was maybe a bit young. Um, but aye, it, it was, it was a, mix of, a mix of influences, and now I love looking back, uh, you know, through all those eras, um, and, um, and, just, and just kind of listening to anything that's, anything that's melodic, I think, is, is what I enjoy, yeah. and I think that comes from, from the Gaelic thing. And yeah, the of course. Thing. In, anything with a nice melody. Mm. Uh, it doesn't really matter what genre it is for me or, or how it's presented. Okay. As long as there's a nice melody flowing through it and then, mm. and that can, you know, cover so many different genres and, and eras of music. Yeah, sure. Um, so what, what instrument was it that you picked up first, apart from the, apart from the ladle? <laughs> um, it was actually, believe it or not, it was the accordion. Was uh, that my first instrument? Yeah. Uh, my mother, um, as a, a farmer's daughter, and uh, my grandpa Dan uh, played the fiddle, and he uh -huh. he was um, although I, I never heard him play the fiddle, but he, he owned the fiddle, and uh, I think it, it was a thing that farmers would, would perhaps do is have an instrument to go around and give a tune, and, and yeah. he was always keen. Actually, I believe for my mother to learn the accordion when she was a, a wee girl, and he brought an accordion back home from the market one day, um, proudly presented it to his daughter and said, "Right, I want you to learn this." And she looked at it, there was a hole in the bellows. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the thing wouldn't work. So the, the next generation, which was me, uh, uh, benefited from my grandpa's keenness that somebody played the accordion in the family. My mum learned the piano eventually. And she's a, a, a piano player. But I was, uh, my grandpa bought me my first accordion. And although it was, it was always singing, I should say, that, that was what I, I did from, from yeah. day one. But when it comes to instrumental, um, it, it was it was the accordion, and and that's how to this day I understand music. When I'm sitting, trying to get my head around a chord progression or what happens next in a song, I'm thinking of the left hand of the accordion rather than the piano or the guitar. Um, I had a very good accordion teacher in Fort William, uh, a guy called John Cameron, uh, who taught me quite a lot about chords and and. Maybe not th theories, maybe not the right word, but but just how music theory and craft the theory and craft works, yeah. um, through through the instrument of the accordion. So I think I'll, I'll always think of music in those terms, if you get what I mean. Yeah. So what? I mean, I'm aware that obviously you were a member of Skippinish for a period, but prior to that, were you? Did you have involvement in a number of other bands or pro and projects or um, or or what was your situation at that point? Not, not really. I mean, it was just, again, in those days, my school days, it was still pretty much traditional folk, um, like the Fish movement, Cayley Trails. Uh, there was a Highland Regional uh, kind of band, a Gaelic band called Snass, and a Gaelic choirs and stuff like that. This, this was basically what I was uh, immersed in all through all through school. And then Skipperish uh, kind of turned up at my house one night. Um, Rachel, Rachel, who's married to one of the lads in Skipperish, and sings with them uh, yeah, yeah. today, actually. Um, she taught me Gaelic singing in, in high school. Right. 
not not in high school, out with high school, but when, while I was at high school. So were, were, you so, speaking, were you speaking Gaelic at that point, or did she kind of open that world for you? Uh, to an extent, I mean, I was learning it at school, but it was it was very much uh, uh, it was learners higher Gaelic, um, and it was the mod really, uh, which is the competitive side of things, that that made me go into actually learning the language, um, which I did actually. I carried on. This is kind of putting the cart before the horse in terms of the chronology as we go through here. But uh, but when I went to uni, uh, I studied English, but I did I did Gaelic as an elective, and I got a lot of help at Glasgow Uni as well. So. Um, and various other people helped with my Gaelic as well. Um, Rachel was, was a massive uh, help with, with, my, with my Gaelic and my singing at, at the time um, throughout those years. And that's why the Skipmish Boys eventually, with that connection, they, they literally turned up at my house one day, one night uh, when I was 17 and I was sixth year, sixth year at school. I'd got my offer, I'd agreed to go to Glasgow Uni and they just appeared and said, right, we want to take you out on tour. And my mum and dad were going, oh my goodness, we need them to focus on university. <laughs> Those two lads that have got a bit of a, a reputation for strong drink and, and uh, <laughs> partying. They were like, what on, what on earth are they going to do to my son? So they, they assured my mum and dad that night they would look after me. And um, and that was, so that was my first basically professional outfit that I, that I yeah. played for the next four years pretty much. Skipinists are, are renowned the world over for their, 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 their music. I mean, they're, they're a fantastic act, obviously. And it would be incredible for anyone with a sort of sad music persuasion to have had members of Skipinish turn up at their door, right? But for someone like yourself, who obviously grew up in that Gaelic, trad, Highland culture, um, to have a couple of Skippinish lads turn up at your door at 17. Like, you must hardly have been able to believe it. How did, I mean, how did, how were you feeling at that point? It must have been crazy. Yeah, I, I was, hey. I mean, um, I mean, I knew Angus and Andrew, um, right. you know, a, a little bit. Um, yeah. But, I, I mean, I was certainly aware of, you know, in terms of traditional, I, th I think as well, at that particular point, the boys had, there was other business interests with, with Skippinish, they had kind of venues and, and uh, they had a boat, Tour thing and a, a, a whiskey and all sorts of different things, and um, but, but that shows not, how that shows how much of an institution they are, though. Like they're not just oh, absolutely, band. yeah. And, and and they said at that point, look, we really want to now start focusing on the band again. So it was quite exciting for me to be asked to be the the, the kind of forefront of, of that. Um, yeah. So oh, I mean, absolutely. At the time, I, I was I was incredibly I was incredibly excited. And do you know what? The next few years proved to be very 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 fun and 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 what you're saying actually about about uh, the difference between the folk influence and the and all the other influences i think skipperish angus and andrew are are are, are very you know real um traditional uh people who are, are have been immersed in, in their in their cultures of, of tyree and lahaber and, and the, like andrew the, the piping tradition of lahaber and, and angus the, the real gallic tradition in tyree um, Angus's mother is an, an incredible Gaelic poet and, uh, and a wonderful woman, actually, who, who was a, a help to me over those years as well um, in terms of Gaelic and, and, and Gaelic song. And so it was great to actually, from that perspective, be, be immersed in that. And, and then we, we started writing our own songs, myself and Angus. Uh, and again, you could put, even just in those years, for the two years or whatever that we did that, you could see that they started very traditional and then they started maybe getting a wee bit more broad in their appeal, yeah. hoping to uh, kind of appeal to a more kind of slightly mainstream, not mainstream's not the word, but a slightly wider audience perhaps. Absolutely. So 
you, you, you've already answered my question, but you, you were with Skippinish for, for four years, right? Um, what were some of your highlights playing with Skippinish? Because you must have had a whole bunch of them. Yeah, um, the, the one I always remember was the first big festival that I ever played at, um, which was Barra Fest or Barra Live, which, which mm-hmm. doesn't happen anymore, unfortunately. But it was, um, it was the first gig I'd ever done in my life where I literally keeped through the, the back of the tent yeah. and saw, you know, a thousand, two thousand people like rammed up against a barrier, just screaming at the band that were on just before us. You mean they weren't socially distanced? I know. <laughs> Heaven forbid. I know. Yes. <laughs> Think of all the germs that must have been spreading. That's, <laughs> that's, just, yeah. a, that's just another music festival, to be fair. Exactly, right. We won't go into what germs were spreading. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was, it was magic. And, and that was like, I mean, I'll never forget that. Just looking through, it was like a wee creek at the tent. And I, I could hear this noise of a crowd just going nuts. And I was 17. And I looked through and I was like, oh my goodness. And I'll never forget the um, two things that I'll never forget about that. One was uh, being in Barra, which is obviously a, a, a massive uh, kind of like the, the main industry's fishing. Uh, we decided, and Angus from the band being a fisherman uh, originally, we decided, or I think Angus decided, that we would go on stage dressed in boiler suits, blue boiler suits and yellow boilers. <laughs> now, as you can probably tell, look at me, I'm the, I'm the least likely to be a fisherman that you've, that you've ever seen in your life. But I got I donned the boiler suits and the wellies, and uh, and that's like um, five five or six men on stage in boiler suits and wellies is exactly what island women just die for. You know, they were <laughs> it's perfect. So I went on, and uh, the other thing I remember is that just on the way to the gig. We'd done a gig the night before in in, in, in Beckler. Mm-hmm. And on the way to the gig, um, we were driving down to get the wee ferry from, from Eriski over to Barra. Mm-hmm. So we'd started, we'd arrived at the ferry in North Uist, done a gig in Beckler, then we're driving down South Uist, Eriski, Barra. And uh, which again was an experience for me. I'd never been to any of those islands, uh, despite coming from the, the West Highlands. And uh, I've never been. I need to go. I need to visit. Oh, honestly, it's an amazing, amazing part of the world. It's just totally great. The, the the scenery and and the people are just brilliant. And this this story concerns the people. We were driving down, and um, Angus turned. He said, "Right." He said, "Are we going to go in for a dram at John Alec Mackay's?" Now, John Alec Mackay, you know, was a name. Didn't mean anything to me. It could could have been. Didn't didn't know the guy from Adam, and. Uh, there was a voice, one of the boys playing with us at the time, a guy, Alan Henderson, fiddle player for plays and fiddles for many years, really talented guy himself, was sitting in the back of the van and he just piped up. He says, if we turn left at this road end to go to John Alex, he said, it will be the worst decision in the history of human warfare. He said, you've got a, a, young, a young 17-year-old here, me, that's yeah. to play tonight in Barra and he's, he's never going to survive a day with John Alec. And I'm thinking, this John Alec guy, he must be wild. You know, he must be absolutely mental. Well... <laughs> We turned down this this road and into a croft house, and uh, out came John Alec, who I now know very well. Just a really, really lovely like crofter from 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 Benbecula, who was just a, a, a lovely host, and his and his wife. They took us in, and then John Alec said, "Boys, would you like to see the Morris Minor?" And outside in the in his in his garage, he had a he had a Morris Minor, and behind a can of WD forty. Out came a wee bottle, and we all had a dram. You know, it was just—I was see for a seventeen-year-old witnessing that. I was just like, "This is amazing." But at the same time, I'm thinking, I've got at that point the biggest gig of my life. 
yeah. on tonight. It was the last thing I wanted to be doing, putting whiskey over my throat that I'd never, never drank a glass of whiskey in my life. Oh, so, yeah. so that was a total experience and one that I'll, I'll definitely never forget. And thankfully, I've had a lot of other great experiences with, with John Allen and people like him uh, over the islands over the years. So um, yeah. that was While we're on the subject of, of hospitality and like cuisine of sorts, what's your take on raw mushrooms? <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to tie this in. Um, <laughs> no, was I. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to go with the social media route or the or the or the food route. I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw yourself, Craig, that you were putting up a poll tonight about raw mushrooms, and I've never heard of anything so ridiculous in my life eating raw mushrooms. <laughs> but do you know what I did? I genuinely typed in on Google. Because I've I've I've, let, I've got I've got a big planet of mushrooms in the fridge at the moment because I'm going to cook myself a pasta tomorrow night. So I typed in, "Can you eat raw mushrooms?" And obviously everyone was all the responses were well as long as you know they're not you know wild or they're, if they're from the supermarket or whatever. Yes, they're safe to eat. So <laughs> I, I went in and I tried one. <laughs> I said I tried one. I tried a nibble of it and. Uh, Aye, I'm not sure I'm, I'm a convert, to be honest. <laughs> how, how much would it take for you to eat half a punnet of mushrooms, do you think? Half a punnet? Aye. I, like, Ali, at, the, at the top of this episode, Rob, when we were sitting here, and Ali was lambasting my decision to fire into the, into the raw mushrooms too, and he said, how many did you have? Like, one or two? And I was like, no, mate, I had about half a packet. I love oh, Brilliant. I don't know. How, how, what would it take for me to do that? If you, if you boys can manage to get tidelines a gig on the main stage at Glastonbury one year, I'll eat half a pint of <laughs> that. Right. <laughs> we might have a deal. Maybe. We'll see. <laughs> not, not that I can get you a gig at Glastonbury, but if it ever happens... Uh, right, let's just make an agreement that if you ever get a gig on the main stage at Glastonbury... Yeah. <laughs> I, I will eat half a pint of mushrooms. Out there on the pyramid stage, live on the BBC, there's Robert Robertson tackling his half a punt of mushrooms. <laughs> Let's talk about it. So Skippinish was great. You obviously had your, had your time there, four years with, with Skippinish, right? I'm thinking that, I don't know this for sure, but I'm thinking that obviously as a 17-year-old, like see, developing your craft even more with an act like Skippinish, it would give you an appetite for doing your own stuff and putting your own stuff out there and, and doing your own thing. Was that the sort of decision point that you that, that you came to in in, in leaving Skippinish, or was there other factors in it as well? Uh, I, I think pretty much. I mean, I'd gone through four years at Glasgow Uni, uh, graduated, and it was at that point, you know, in anyone's life, I think you start thinking, well, okay, that's me out of uni. What am I going to now do? Yeah. Uh, and I really wanted to be in a position where I was. I was kind of, not, I was steering my own course, uh, or at least steering my own course with, you know, with a with a group of lads, and that we were going to start our own project then, and 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 really be part of it from its conception. Um, Skipperish obviously being a, an amazing uh, thing that, that Angus and Andrew had, had built up over kind of ten years before I before I was part of it. Uh, Tidelines was the opportunity for me um, to have something along with the three other lads that was yeah. going to be hours from the very beginning and we could take it wherever we wanted to take it. And that was something that at the age of 22 straight out of uni was really, really exciting to me and to, and still is, uh, yeah. I should say. Yeah, yeah. Yes. absolutely. So 2016 obviously formed 
tidelines. How did you decide on the name? First of all, like where does the name come from? It comes from the first song. The, the, the first thing we ever decided on was that I had written a song called Fireside of the World and that the other boys liked it. Um, and that, that was going to be our, our starting point. So we met, uh, well, we met for a pint, first of all, as you do. Um, Ross and I, I should say, uh, myself and Ross Wilson, uh, the keyboard player, he played with Skipperish as well. So we were, we were pals for quite a while by that point. The other two lads I'd never met before. Um, it's a long story, but we, we knew them through various uh, musical connections in Glasgow, which is an amazing city for the, the music scene. We got in touch with them purely in a professional capacity to say we, musically, we think this is going to work. It was nothing to do with personalities. We didn't know the guys. They could have turned out to be, you know, the most famous people on the planet. But uh, thankfully, they turned out to be just, you know, guys that, that now are our best pals. Um, and we met them for a pint individually, actually, Ali first, then Gus, and they were like, yeah, definitely up for joining the band, definitely up for doing this. And then from that moment on, we said, right, all four of us are doing this together, and we met at, uh, at Berkeley Studios, rehearsal studios, and I said, right, what do you think of this song, Far Side of the World? And they said, right, let's go. So we started kind of jamming it and took it from there. I've forgotten what your question was. Oh, it was about the name of the band. So um, so we then recorded it and we set a date for its release and everything. And this was all before we had a name. We had everything planned out. We were, we were playing at Tyree Festival. Um, Daniel Gillespie from Skerry Vore gave us our first big gig and um, that was a, a real launching pad for us. And we're like, this is, this is perfect. It's all aligning. And it was like a week before it all happened or before we had to cut the 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 last credit into the music video or something like that. I can't remember what the detail was, but it came down to, right, by midnight tonight, we need to have a name. <laughs> and um, and it was a nightmare because we just hadn't come up. We'd been back and forth, back and forth. Nothing had nothing had come up with, no one had come up with anything. And it was the- What, were some, of, what were some of the worst suggestions? Because, I mean, it's a big thing naming a band, but there must've been some hellish suggestions or that. Um, do you know, the only one that, ring, that actually I can remember, I mean, there was, there was, oh, there was probably, tw- I mean, was, and, and the worst of it is all your pals start suggesting as well because they know you and, and it, it doesn't help you know you're just oh no jeez stop stop and uh, <laughs> the worst one I've got to say was not that it was a bad name but it was a wee design that one of the boys did and I won't let let on who it was um, it was the name Inshore Water <laughs> in, in, inshore, inshore Waters right which seems reasonable enough you know it's not it's not hugely inspiring but it's okay but he was like, oh, I've even come up with a logo for it and everything. I was like, oh, magic. What is it? Here it is. So it's Inshore Waters. Now, the T in Waters was an anchor. But if you use the word Waters without <laughs> the word anchor in the middle, <laughs> Inshore, <laughs> I'll leave the rest to your imagination. And thankfully, thankfully, we spotted that before we announced that that was our, our name. And actually, do you know what? That story's never been told until you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> we, were all, we were almost uh, the insure W anchors. Um, <laughs> anyway, so basically, after all that, um, we were looking at uh, the words the far side of the world, and there's a line at the end, and I always forget when I'm trying to speak the words of us. In my mind, I see where the tide lines grace the isle, and one of the boys said, What about tide lines? And I've got to admit, I wasn't massively enthused by it myself at the time but we just went well it's kind of our only option and uh, we went with it and now I think it's amazing how the name of a band if you if you either are in a band or if you follow a band 
the name just becomes synonymous with the band. You can really call yourself anything. I mean, like the Beatles. It's not a part- no, nobody hears the Beatles and thinks of the insect. You know, they think if you if, if you know who the Beatles are, as most people do, then you hear the Beatles, you think of four guys. You don't think of Beatles. So hopefully, those people who know tidelines don't think of like the. The, like the ribbon round the bath of where the high water back of the bath is or someone's not washed their neck properly, which is people <laughs> said, oh, that's what a tideline was when I was a kid. Is that right? Well, for us, supposed to be the high water mark on the shore, which I thought was a nice image, you know, might get driftwood or whatever lying along the, the, the shore, a bit of nice kind of seaweed or shells, whatever, you know, and they, something nice and picturesque was, was the kind of idea behind it. And coastal, we wanted it to be coastal because we're all from that kind of, those kind of areas of Scotland. You mentioned the far side of the world. Obviously, it's a beautiful song. Um, contributes to the, to the to the debut album, Dreams We Never Lost. Um, great album. Um, obviously, there's some some great tracks on it. The Young, the Restless, and as I think is one of my personal favourites of of you guys. Um, how do you look back on that album now? You, I mean, it's it's four years later um, since its release. I'm assuming five six years since you were writing those songs, if not longer, um, and. First of all, you've 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 got such a distinctive voice, right? That obviously has captured really amazingly on the record, and in fact throughout all your records to this point. Um, but yeah, um, how do you look back on that record now? Do you look back with fondness, or are there other points of it that you go, oh, as a debut record, oh, I wouldn't have done that. I would have changed that. I would re-record that. Uh, I mean, the short answer is I don't. To be honest, I don't look back. <laughs> I don't really look back at it. Um, but if I, you know. Being asked the question, I would say probably all of the above. There's definitely stuff when when I hear it, it especially vocally, actually. Um, I think, oh, wait a minute. Uh, that's probably not what I would do now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still like the songs. I mean, we, we play the songs still live all the time. And, and there's not really much in the songwriting that makes me think, oh, I wish I'd never written that. Now, there are lines that I think, oh, I could have probably a bit more thought into that but it was all its time it was about me being a young lad in Glasgow kind of missing home at times and so anything that is in that that doesn't represent me now it doesn't really matter to me because it represented me at the time um, yeah. that's what it's all about yeah yeah absolutely so, no really I mean that's really why I don't I don't smell it yeah yeah I want to ask you about um the decision to include Walking on the Waves on that album, right? Because obviously that's that was a track that you'd played with, with Skippinish before. Um, what, wh- why did you make that decision to re-record that for the Tidelines record? Um, because we liked it. Um, myself and myself and Angus McPhail wrote that together uh, after Tidy Festival 2013. Okay. Um, and, you know, I think obviously at that point, moving forward with, with Tidelines, it was, it was never going to be of benefit to us uh, or to Skipperish if we were just going to start singing all the Skipperish songs that I'd, that I'd co-written with Angus, that would have been silly. <laughs> it wouldn't have, that's not the direction we wanted to go in. But I think the song Walking in the Waves was just basically the one that still fitted with. Yeah. Because Tidelines was definitely always aimed to be just a bit more poppy, a bit more mainstream uh, with those influences there. But, you know, we brought in Ali, electric guitar, we brought in Gus, who's a, a kind of like his his career at that point had been basically in the rock industry rather than rather than anything else, and um, and so Walking in the Waves was one we thought this this could fit. Also, obviously, it was it was our biggest 
song with, with Skippish, and I knew that anywhere I went, I was going to get that requested anyway. So we were like, well, it makes sense. Otherwise, we're going to be doing timelines gigs and getting getting that song shouted at us until we do it. So, but but the important thing for us was that we were going to do a timelines version of it. We weren't just going to say, you know, use us. Put you the same version. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we were going to do something new with it. Um, so we changed. I mean, it was Gus. I think. Uh, put a whole new drum rhythm onto it, which changed, I mean, the whole song completely for me. At that time, for the first album, we, we had a, a, an amazing uh, musician that, that, that offered his services to us, um, Anton, uh, Th- Anto, I should say, Anto Thistlethwaite uh, from the, the Water Boys and the Saw Doctors. And uh, we'd worked with him on a, on a BBC Alapa show with Skipperish. I really got to know him really well. He was, he was emailing me over the years and just various things. And then when we started a new band, he said, look, anytime you want some saxophone, he played saxophone and, and mandolin. He said, anytime you want some saxophone, um, you know, you know where I am. So I said, well, do you know what? That would be a stamp of something different on not just walking the base, but on a couple of tracks of the album, just to have a, a saxophone come screaming in with a massive solo. I was like, that's, that's exactly what we needed, something to move yeah. it more into that sort of rock and roll sounding thing rather than just um, where, we'd, where we'd kind of been before since since the days I've been telling you about as a school kid. Aye. As I say, I don't reflect too much on the album, but I do think that that, that song fits with, with the album. I don't think it would necessarily fit if we put it on the next album, um, yeah. but that's part of the, the progression, obviously. Of course, of course. But between the albums you released, uh, you had the EP, Let's Make Tonight, right? Which I'm not so I'm not as familiar with that as as I am with the two the two albums there, but bands have different reasons for releasing EPs as opposed to albums. What was yours? Why why did you decide to go with doing an EP in between the albums as opposed to continuing to write and um, aim for that album? Why why was it an EP that you put out between them? <laughs> Good question. And the answer is I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely no idea. I think it was probably a case of a mixture of things. I think the first album was still doing us well. I think we didn't want to wave goodbye to it. Um, at that point, we had various people interested in doing sort of maybe a distribution deal or, 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 or helping us out with with uh, marketing and, and things like this. And, and we didn't really know where we were going in, in that sense. Um, and so we didn't really want to put out a second album because we still felt the first album had a lot of mileage in it. We thought, well, you know, we've sold this first album to people in the Highlands that knew us already, but we were we were really building our audience at that point and getting out to other parts of Scotland and, and to a lesser extent other parts of the UK, but at that point it was still really Scotland. Places like Dundee and places like Aberdeen and, and, and uh, even Edinburgh, you know, where we really weren't well known. We were, we were known right up and down the West Highlands and we could do a good enough gig in Glasgow and that was really it. And we thought, you know what, we believe in this album, we don't want to just release a second album right away and then all of a sudden that first album's just consigned to, to history. Yeah. So we thought, but, but of course, like any band, you need new material, you need new material to keep pushing you on. So we thought, well, if we release an EP, we can get the, the, the publicity around a new release, but also it can draw any new fans back to the first album. And on that EP, uh, for that purpose, we put a live version of Farsighted of the World so that if people heard that, they would go, well, if this is a live version, you know, there's a crowd in it from, from Stornoway that, that, that know the words. So that 
presumably they'd think, wait a minute, where's this song? Oh, wait a minute, they've got a first album. And it could uh, it could sort of retrospectively take people back to the first album. And actually, I think it worked, the plan, yeah. um, because we managed to build a, an audience over those years that was that was sitting there ready for the eventual second album release, which, as I say, was just at the start of lockdown. It was around that time of, the, of that EP that, uh, I mean, obviously coupled with the success, the relative success of the first album, that you guys were starting to, you know, play bigger headline shows. And it was around then that, obviously, I mean, you'd st- you started selling out the Battlelands, which we mentioned as, a, as an amazing venue and one of the best in the country, undoubtedly. Um, selling that out in five minutes. I mean, that must have felt like, first of all, like you justified your reasons for leaving Skippinish and going to do your own thing and like pushing your own projects. And secondly, it must have felt incredible at the time to be able to go and do that. It did. It was, it was a really emotional gig, as anyone that's done their first ever gig in the Battlelands would probably tell you. Uh, there's just something special about that place. It's unreal. Uh, and at that point, it felt like we were really, we were really moving. Um, yeah. We'd released two singles that year, uh, both of which ended up on the album, uh, the, the, the second album. And one, one was called Heroes. That got us our first, our first kind of serious Radio 2 play. Uh, and then we did a piece for STV about sitting in, in the Battlelands on the empty dance floor talking about the song because the song Heroes um, if anyone wants to listen to it it, it's, it was written basically with a view to that Battlelands gig and talking about that tradition in Scotland where like a boy and a girl would go to a dance you know in the old days would line up the men along one wall you know as they call it in Glasgow the, the dancing and of course the Battlelands it's, it's the Battleland ballroom uh, and it was, that was what it was all about is, is the old kind of Glasgow style dancing and that, so that song was kind of loosely written about that because, of course, that's a tradition, not, not the lining up along the walls, but the, the going to <laughs> dance is a tradition that still exists very strongly in the Highlands and the Islands. It doesn't really happen down here anymore. People go out to the pub and enter the clubs. But, um, but back home, it's like, oh, there's a dance on. Who's playing? It'll be a local band or it'll be a band from, you know, Sky or a band from US or a band from Tyree or whatever. Oh, they're over. Oh, magic. We'll need to go out and hear them. And it's like a, a traditional Scottish Cayley dance. And that's still, you know, my age group and a lot younger, that's still a big night out on a Saturday in, in a lot of the Highlands. So it was kind of, the, the song Heroes was trying to sort of capture that, but then what we were aiming to do is basically put on a a, a show in the Battlelands that was it was nothing like that. It was it was a, a rock and roll gig with everyone standing, jumping about, and, and that's basically what a Tideline show is. And, um, and, and so at that point we built it up, we did the Battlelands show, it felt like, like, we'd kind of achieved what we wanted to achieve. And then um, shortly after that, we, we, we got an award at the Scottish Music Awards in, in December, um, which I think was largely sort of off the back of the fact that we'd sold out the Battleland show so quickly. You, you gave us a wee bit too much credit. It wasn't five minutes, it was six minutes. So uh, <laughs> but, uh, that's what she said. <laughs> oh man, I walked into that one. I hope, I hope <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going. To, I was going to ask you about that because um, I, I was actually in the room that night when you guys got the Rising Sound of Scotland Award at the Nordoff Robbins Music Awards. Which, um, and at the time, I was around then. I heard Heroes first of all, and actually, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant song. Um, firstly, but I think you recognised that in doing Tidelines, you wanted to continue with the trad feel of Skippinish, but actually to 
take it to a bit more of a commercial, almost mainstream kind of, um, or more mainstream um, venture. And Heroes, for me, definitely captures that. And hearing you talk about that song is brilliant, actually, because it's, uh, it's a great, it's a great, great track. Um, but yeah, I, I, as I say, I was in the room when you guys got the, the rising sound of Scotland the world um, with my best mate uh, Jamie, who's a who's a massive fan um, of the of the band actually, and he was he was jumping about everywhere. It was great, um, but that that must have felt like I mean, obviously you don't you don't put out music or do music to win awards, of course you don't, but to actually get that kind of recognition on a national level and to receive you know a, a major award at the Scottish Music Awards. That must have been another special kind of moment on the ladder on your journey. Yeah, and and, and it was at that time that that there, that as I say, I don't want to kind of preempt your next question, but there, there were a few things that were happening. So the, the Barrowland show, that um, then we got our, our, our gig came in roughly about that time, asking if we would play the uh, at the Six Nations for the Scotland France game at Murrayfield, um, and then and then we, around the time of that gig, which was obviously in the spring. Uh, we we got a key sessions gig and a show, so it was like everything was kind of getting quite exciting with the album about to come out, yeah. and then it takes us back to where we started this podcast, which is coronavirus, <laughs> and it's just like oh my goodness, everything went away, and we're back to not we're not back to square one, but but um, you know that that wee exciting period. I'd say those those four things were incredible: the Barrowlands, the the Scottish Music Awards, playing at Murrayfield, and 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 a wee bit more recognition, obviously the, the key sessions. Yeah. And obviously, as you said, that takes us neatly on to basically where, where everything stopped. Um, and that was obviously the release of The Eye of the Storm. Again, a great album. Got some great songs on it. Obviously, we've mentioned Heroes, but Shadow to the Light, Innocent and Beautiful. And then, obviously, charted at number 12 in the, in the UK charts, um, which obviously for effectively an unsigned act of sorts, you know, like... Uh, that must that must have felt like validation and like you know like this is as you said and you've expressed throughout this episode how much it's growing and growing and actually where is this going to go next because this is crazy like that must have been again an amazing feeling before we realised what was all going to happen in the following months. <laughs> well, I, I I again you don't really think of each individual event in 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 us in the sort of wider perspective as as it's happening obviously. Um, so for us, what charting at number 12 represented was basically uh, not the validation of, of, of anything like for years before. It was mainly just the validation of that three months of hard work actually pushing the album. And, uh, and as you say, being unsigned, uh, obviously we had, you know, we had a wee team that were sort of doing a bit of marketing for us, but, but largely it was, you know, there was no label behind it. Um, so we'd kind of realistically, we thought, right, well, top 40, if we could chart. And, and by charting, obviously, I don't mean like every band now that release a single, you can get, you know, you can get into the top 40 and you go, take a screenshot, here we are, or the top 40 on iTunes or whatever. And, and then and then you're, you're at the top 40. But obviously our aim was to be in the top 40 come the end of the week, throughout the, the seven days of the UK, and actually get a chart position. And... The, when we released, the, you know, the day of the release or the next day, we, the charts um, there was like a, they do like a midweek, and uh, on the we were sitting, I think we were number three, and we were like, wow, and that was like a total jaw hit the floor moment. We just, could, I mean, we'd done like a big pre-save, a pre-save and pre-sale campaign, um, yeah. where we we knew like we've got thousands of, of sales here that are going to go in on the first day, and that'll rocket rocket us up the chart naturally. 
and then after that it'll fall away as the week goes on. Um, and our fans, you know, they really got together and supported us. They'd all bought the album on pre-sale, uh, pre-sale pre-ordered, yeah. pre-ordered, I should say, you know, for physicals. So that they've actually got all those, those are ready and they go in. And all of a sudden we're, we're number three and we thought, all right, we'll fall away here. And um, I said to the, well, so somebody said, look, as long as if, if we could remain in the top 40, that was our aim. And I said, well, we've got a chance of still remaining in the top 20. But um, to get number 12 was just, I mean, that day, that Friday, we were just going to bed on a Thursday, just oh, 10 o'clock tomorrow, whenever it is that the charts announced, they're like, this is going to be a big moment. And anyway, it came out as 12. And it was number one in the, in the Scottish charts and also number one in the independent, like the independent charts for any band that doesn't have a label. So those two things were, were kind of equally as big. And as you say, at that time, it was May and, and uh, right in the middle of lockdown. And so it really, really cheered us up. And, and I'm, I'm telling you this not to kind of boast about it, but more to say that it was the very fact that all our fans were sitting largely throughout the country, but, but all over the world, really, on, on social media, tuning into whatever we were doing each night to, to promote the album and just supporting us no end. And you then look back and you think, well, do you know what? If we'd been out on tour, as we would have been, but we weren't for coronavirus. Okay, we'd be playing the thing live, but we wouldn't have had this captive audience of people that are locked in their homes, looking at their computer screens, waiting for eight o'clock each night because I was coming on to sing a few songs. And yeah. it's those people that really got us to that that charting point was was just um, with their support. And that was something that at that point, which was a really emotional time for the whole country, um, yeah. you know, with the virus taking its toll, but also just with the lockdown scenario. For us, that was that was a really, really emotional moment. Um, and we're not particularly emotional people, but um, yeah. I think... Highlanders, they never are. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think Scotsmen really are in general. <laughs> <laughs> was there ever a point, like obviously you said the album came out in May, and there were so many bands, musicians and whatnot that tried to push back releases of albums and whatnot in order to wait and see what was happening with the pandemic. Or, you know, we want to try and push this back a couple months because it's going to be gone by... August and then we can get out and tour it in the autumn was that a decision that you guys ever considered um obviously you're you'd be glad you didn't because you'd still be delaying it at this point but like was that something that crossed your mind it was um but it was never a serious option because one we'd already announced the album uh, we gave the album like a because as I say the aim was to chart we gave the album a three-month campaign so we'd announced it three months before we released it the first of May and yeah. if you if you think back, that was that was before lockdown. So it was already announced. We thought, as you say, we could delay it. But in actual fact, it had been delayed before without announcing it. Um, right. we'd, we'd thought about it, even at the time we were talking earlier about the EP. Even yeah. at the time we did that EP, we were thinking about releasing an album. We thought, no, we'll delay it, we'll delay it, we'll get the right time. And we thought maybe it was the right time. And we thought, you know what, we've messed about this so much. Let's yeah. just do it. And what you were saying there about the artists that did delay their release, I'm, I'm sure that helped us in charts terms because there wasn't any big release. You know, it wasn't like, oh, timelines, we've got a real chance. And then all of a sudden, you know, Ed Sheeran releases an album and, you know, it just blows everyone out of the water. It, yeah. was, it was probably quite a quiet time. So that was, that was a big help. Mm. Or at least I think it is. I don't really, you, you can never really be sure. But um, it's one of these things you could dwell on it either way, but actually you achieved what you achieved and you got your, your, like your top 
12 in the UK and you're number one in Scotland chat position, regardless of who you were up against, you know, um, you can't dwell on that. Um, but as we said at the top of the episode, obviously back in action, um, you returned, I think last week um, and or two weeks ago and you were, you were down there at the, the Euro 2020 fan zone. Um, talk us through how that felt getting back on a stage and performing in front of actual humans again. It was amazing. It was amazing. It was nerve wracking. Um, we'd obviously, it was the first time, as I said, that we were playing all the new material, uh, which was no longer new, it was over a year old. So it's like, I mean, it's always nerve wracking to play new material. You, you never really know, you can see on social media, but you can never really know how people are enjoying it um, sitting in their houses listening to it. Um, but a year later, I'm like, oh, what if nobody's liked this album in the first place? A year later, <laughs> so we got out and we played. Uh, well, and the other thing, of course, was just practically, we had to rehearse it all. Yeah. Um, and we had to, you know, spend days just actually learning it all, which was a pretty unique situation, learning songs for the first time a year after you released them. So uh, it was all very strange. It was a bit, what's going on? What, how's social distancing going to affect it? We're going out to play to 1,900 people, I think there were, all sitting at tables of six that were two metres apart. How's that going to work? And then to, to make matters worse, I woke up in the morning and it was absolutely inclement Glasgow weather to, to <laughs> the polite term. It was unbelievable. It was just lashing down rain. It was horrible. And I was like, oh my goodness, nobody's going to stay. There was, there was two bands on before us, two great bands, Brettbach and, um, and the Canaris Quintet. And I thought, no one's going to stay and listen to us. They're going to, you know, they're going to hear those guys, they're going to enjoy that. And then they're going to realise that they're soaked to the skin and they'll thought, oh, we'll just miss out the last band, they'll be home. But um, we got on stage and I'm pretty certain all 1900 people were still there. It was mobbed. And just looking out, obviously Glasgow, it was a Glasgow Green. Mm -hmm. And looking out and seeing the same vista that, that the killers looked out at at, uh, at Transmit, which was the only Transmit gig I was ever at. It was uh, Churches, Franz Ferdinand and the killers. And uh, just looking out and thinking, wow, we're on this stage. Okay, there's not... 20,000 folk in front of us, there's 2,000, but uh, but this is our first, as you say, chance to play to real humans in so long. And what quickly became apparent was it was their first chance to listen to real humans in so long, and they were enjoying it just as much as we were. And it was just an amazing night. The rain was honestly unbelievable, and the front two metres of the stage were a washout, so I wasn't able to stand in front of the drums as I would. I was standing kind of to the side of Gus, and it was kind of weird. It was all sort of this foreign environment. And... Um, they all had their umbrellas up. So at one point I was trying to say, how do you get a crowd going? And I'd been, we'd been sort of warned, look, don't get the crowd going too much because obviously, and I said, I've not done a gig in a year and a half. I'm, I, I it's not really in my DNA to tell them to, to take it easy. So I thought, hey, what, what can I do? I, said, I can't tell them to dance. So I said, look, get your, get your brawlies and just punch the air with your umbrellas. So the next thing you've literally got 2000 umbrellas just going up and down like that and it was, it was like the weirdest scene I've ever ever witnessed, but it, um, it was magic and oh, the crowd were so receptive. They were singing every word, which was great. Uh, well, certainly not all of them, but the ones that the ones that had followed us. With it. Yeah. A lot of people had travelled because obviously they'd followed the band through lockdown and they'd come to hear us, and, and they were singing every word. It was just magic. It was a great feeling. 
Before we wrap up, then what what are your favourite tideline songs? So, um, like you know, like when you when you're stuck in the set list, you obviously, as you said, you've touched upon the Spotify figures and whatever else. You need to place a certain element of the crowd pleasers. But are there any of them that, that you think that when you're sitting with the boys, you're like, yeah, we absolutely need to bang X, Y, or Z in the set because it's a great song to play. Well, uh, any band would tell you. Obviously, you've got your songs that are the first. Like, like football managers, first name in the team sheet, the first song in the, the set list. Yeah. Uh, there's two or three of those that are always there. But um, personally, and this isn't from a songwriting perspective, I mean, I've got no idea what my best or worst song yeah. is. They all, to me, they all just seem like my songs. I'm, I'm never sure whether they're any good or not. Okay. Um, it's kind of like having, like, I don't have kids, but I imagine it's like having kids and trying to pick your favourite child like in, 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 in that sort of sense. They're all your babies, aren't they? The, 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 you've crafted them all. They've all come from a place that represents yeah, a yeah. An interesting analogy. I'd never thought of that. But um, no, it's more kind of like when I write a song, I've just got no idea whether it's good or not. Like I've got, I've got a vague idea that, you know, the boys are saying this one to the boys rather than this one or whatever. But once I send them to the boys, it's totally up to the three of them what we use because I'm kind of like, I, I can't really tell whether that's going to be good or not. Whereas the boys, obviously it's not at that point, it's not their song. It becomes their song after a, a further writing process, but the initial thing comes and they can look at it uh, in a sort of disinterested, uh, not disinterested, but uh, from the outside rather than the inside of it. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a neutral perspective really. Yeah. And just give an honest opinion on it. So for that reason, I don't have a favorite uh, song that I've done, but in terms of performing, Live, eh, I always enjoy the, and it's right one of the first songs we ever did with Tidelines, um, the Fortunes of the Fearless. And the reason being that at the moment we're starting that song, and we have done for what well, we did in the last tour, and we're still doing it, is um, I just start it with the electric guitar and I get the crowd singing the chorus with me, and it's just me in the crowd. And, and mind you, that sounds terrible that, as if I don't like the boys being involved, but it's just that for me, it's a nice moment that. As long as the crowd are actually singing along, because I've done it before and they've just stood there and looked at me. But when it when it works, um, that's an amazing feeling for me personally. Um, and I always kind of look forward to that part of the set. And not so much just that, but the part when I finish that wee bit and the, it dies away and the drums come in and the boys fit in, and that feels like a a bit that I enjoy in the set. But um, I am not saying that's because it's it's better or worse than anything yeah. else. It's just it's it's a bit that it's. Maybe just because it's a wee bit different and it's something that I can do. Boys maybe taking a breather, a bottle of water, and I'm just having my own wee moment with the crowd. Apart from apart from standing on stage at, at Glastonbury on the pyramid stage with half a punnet of raw mushrooms, what are your hopes for the future? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I don't know. We've got we've got new material that we're working on at the moment. Um, so this is a probably quite a boring answer, but I suppose the hope would just be that that new material can take us to some kind of next level um, in terms of where we were at the Battlelands and how I really felt it was kind of building at that point. We want to get that feeling again and, and, and move it forward this time and not be stopped by a global pandemic. But um, yeah, that's that's really it. I mean, obviously in the back of my mind, there's dreams and wild ambitions that I could tell you, you know, but, uh, but that's, you know, realistically, we just want to, like any band, you want your next gig to be bigger than your last, basically, even if it's just by a few, few couple of people. Obviously, you guys have um, a bunch of festivals booked for for this summer, which hopefully will go ahead. Um, and look at looking beyond that, you guys start off on 
Um, an actual tour, um, as far as I'm aware, starting the Air Town Hall on August the 26th and running out through to the end of the year uh, and beyond. Um, how are you feeling about that? That must well feel incredible once you get out on the road and it actually happens. I just can't bring myself to think too much about it, to be honest. I think until until I'm, until I plug my guitar in on stage at Air Town Hall and the tour actually begins, um, yep. I, I just can't allow myself to get excited about it because I've postponed it two or three times already. But I mean, surely this is the one, you know, we're, we're on the right track now out of this, the vaccine and everything. And surely to goodness by the end of August, those are going to go ahead and we're, we're really, I mean, as far as we know they are, you know, the agent and the promoter and all that, it's all in place, it's ready to go, the tickets are sold. We're just uh, so looking forward to it, but you can understand my reticence to get to get too excited um, after everything that the music industry's been been through in the last year and a half. Um, Robert Robertson, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast this evening, and uh, here's hoping that we'll see you on a stage very very soon. Thanks for having me, lads. Enjoyed the enjoyed the chat.